Hello and welcome. I'm Pastor Jeff Berry here at Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Ringgold, Georgia. And uh, I'm actually recording this um, on July 1st, but this is uh, just a re-recording of the sermon that I preached on June 26th. And the reason for that is, is we just had some technical difficulties, uh, but I think that this is such an important subject matter um, that I really wanted you guys to have this uh, in, in the podcast form. And uh, some of you have told me you wanted to share this uh, podcast to, to help others. And so uh, you're welcome to do that. And I'm re- recording this for you. And by the way, if you're one of those people whom this, uh, this podcast was shared with, I'm just so thankful. I feel honored that I get to uh, speak into your life just at any level. And I truly pray that God uses it in your life. The reason um, I'm preaching this sermon is because on on Friday, last Friday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. So in 1973, uh, the the Supreme Court ruled um, in Roe v. Wade that pregnant women could have an abortion on demand and states, individual states, could not legislate differently. And uh, that now has been overturned. And even as we're seeing now, many states are legislation, legislating uh, laws against having uh, abortions. And so my, my thought is that many of you will likely have conversations surrounding this issue in the, in the coming days and coming weeks. And truly, I, I hope for that. I pray for that. I pray that you do get into these conversations uh, concerning uh, this, this issue of human life. And so um, that's what this sermon is going to be about. Why do we care about human life? Uh, why is it <clears throat> that people would want to uh, kill babies? And how is it that a, a Christian that's biblically informed should respond to these issues? And so that's what today is going to be about. I'm so glad uh, that you're listening in. And uh, let's go ahead and pray now that God would use it. Father God, uh, we need your grace today. We are uh, so thankful uh, for the work that you're doing in our world and our lives and uh, even in our government, Lord, with this overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, but God, we confess that all of this is difficult for us. It's difficult because uh, the world is telling us uh, that we should think a certain way about um, human life. And your Bible, your, your word is telling us something different. And often, Lord, um, this issue is difficult because we carry around our own guilt and our own shame for choices that we've made in the past. Maybe we've had abortions, God, and and we feel the shame of that. Maybe we don't even want to think about it or talk about it. And God, this is also a difficult issue because we, we don't know how to rightly respond. We don't know what it would look like for a Christian to respond to these issues and how to carry ourselves in conversations even uh, with coworkers and friends and family members. And so, God, we ask for a special measure of grace. God, that you would soothe our hearts, that you would uh, take down any barriers to us listening and hearing from you, God, and from your word. And Lord, that you, I pray that you would equip us, equip us to speak as those who have been saved by your grace from all our many sins. And for, for many of us, that even includes the sin of abortion. And God, we, we just continually need your grace and your forgiveness. And we're so thankful for what Christ Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, that he bore 
our guilt, that he bore our shame, that he took the punishment upon himself on the cross. And then he showed his victory by rising from the dead on the third day. And so, God, we do believe in faith that Jesus did these things that we can be and are forgiven by trusting in Jesus. And God, we want to now live that new life that Jesus purchased on the cross. We want to live that life and do that for the good of others and for your glory, God. You deserve the glory. You are our creator. You are supreme. You are glorious and majestic. And so, God, we want to live our lives in a way that honors you. And that, that's a, especially true um, even when, when these issues are, are pressing it, when they, they're making us um, come and, and take a side, uh, Lord. And so we just ask for your grace. Speak through your word, speak through your spirit, and, and use me, Lord, as a, as a vessel to do that. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we see that in Egypt there was an epic battle raging over this matter of human life. And that battle still rages on today in the United States and, and all over the world. See, in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, I'd encourage you to, to read those chapters all at one time. I'm not going to do that today, but I would encourage you to read those and see that there was an epic battle for human life, specifically of Hebrew male children. And so th th this is not a new thing. This is not a new topic um, in, in our world that, that human life has been threatened, that, that there are those who want to snuff out human life, and there are those who want to uphold and protect human life. This is nothing new. And so, again, we have this thing going on with uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned last Friday. And um, we need to understand that this is just a part of a bigger picture, something that has been going on for thousands of years. And I'll tell you, even with what's happened uh, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, we must not be naive. This has not made abortion illegal. The issue is by no means settled. It's now, you know, at the state level. Uh, but even that, we can't control um, fully how those laws go. But we understand that even laws won't ne necessarily dictate morality in the way people actually carry out uh, their lives and the way they treat other humans. And so this is a very, very important topic for all of us. Now, we need to know some things if we're going to, number one, have right convictions, firm convictions about human life and the dignity of human life and preserving human life. But in addition, we need to be equipped for conversations that God is going to allow us to get into about this subject of human life and whether or not it should be allowed or encouraged uh, for human life to be snuffed out uh, by abortion or even infanticide as was going on in Egypt. So there are a couple questions uh, that we need to be able to answer. The first one is, why should we care about human life? I mean, the world is telling us now, oh, they're just lumps of human cells. Or, or the, the world is telling us, no, that, that's really under the government governance rather of, of a woman. And so she can decide what happens with that, with that lump of cells, also known as a, a baby and a, an embryo. So 
really, the, you know, what, what's going on here? Why should we care? Why, why don't we, you know, have sermons about saving the whales? Why don't I feel bad when I crush an ant that's walking across the floor in my house? What is the difference about human life? And we need, again, to have firm convictions about this so that it can help our, our own um, faith through, through all these trials, uh, but also so that we can have biblically informed conversations with others and to do so uh, from, from an aspect that reflects God's word. And so we'll look at uh, the first thing that we see uh, there in Exodus and, and really in the Bible uh, about human life. And that's this, number one, the peculiar preciousness of human life, the peculiar preciousness of human life. And I choose those words carefully of, uh, in, in a sense, all life is precious. God created all life. God did create the whales. God did create the ant that walks across the, the floor in my house. But there is a peculiar preciousness of human life. There is something different about humans that would make us want to protect one another as humans, whether they be pre-born humans, just born humans, or even humans at the end of their life when their bodies are breaking down and when their mind is gone, there is a peculiar preciousness to human life. Now in Exodus that we're studying, uh, we see this actually in Exodus chapter 1, 7. And I, I just want to show you this connection because it is going to point us back to Genesis chapter 1. So Exodus chapter 1 is going to force us to look back on Genesis chapter 1. It says this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So there are three words in there that, that just, for me, they, they just stick out. Uh, it's the word fruitful, the word multiplied, and the word filled. All of these, if for anyone who is familiar with the book of Genesis, know exactly what this is pointing us to. So the, the author of, of Exodus, Moses, is pointing us back to what was written in Genesis chapter 1. And this is where we see these exact same words explicitly. Um, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, And God blessed them, that is humans, and God said, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we had those same words in Exodus uh, 1, 7. They were fruitful, they multiplied, and the earth was filled with them. The land was filled with them. And so we have uh, this pointing us back to what's going on in Genesis. It's, it's reminding us, I believe, of the peculiar preciousness of human life. The lives that are being threatened there in Egypt, um, it, it's pointing us back to their preciousness that's based in Genesis chapter 1. So there in Genesis chapter 1, 28, there's a command of God to our first parents, Adam and Eve. He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So he's talking about procreation, you know, replicating the human race, making other humans. But this may make us wonder, well, why would God give such a command? Why is God concerned with humans multiplying and filling the earth? Well, that actually takes us back just two verses, the verses that immediately precede Genesis 1.28. They say this. This is so important. This is just after God has made, you know, all of creation. He's made the sun. 
He's made the moon. He's made the stars. He's made the land, the, the water, birds, fish, and animals. And there's a break in the flow of the creation narrative. And this is what it says, Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what we see in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27 is a conversation among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then that's repeated again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female. So that's all humans, every single human, male, female are created in the image of God bearing his likeness. Now it would take so many sermons to, to fully flesh out what it means to be made in the image of God. But for, for today's purposes, I just want to point out one issue that, that we know for sure is that in, in a peculiar way, humans are image bearers of God, meaning we are like little living, breathing statues or representations of God on earth. We, we are rep- representations of what God is like. And so the, the earth was supposed to what was supposed to be filled, the mankind was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that the earth would be filled with the press, precious image or representation of what God is and what God is like. Now humans are again, we're just a reflection. We, we are not God, but it's saying we bear the image of God. Now, we know that in Genesis chapter 3, uh, mankind deeply marred our ability to rightly uh, reflect the glory of God, rightly reflect uh, his image here on this earth. But our image-bearing va- value was not removed. We, we are still image-bearers of God. We see this um, m- most clearly in Genesis chapter 9. This is uh, long after mankind had fallen, and they uh, if you trace Genesis 3, on up to like Genesis um, nine here, where we're going to look at the world is just getting more and more wicked and sinful and more opposed to God. And so God floods the, the sinful world and he kills everyone except for Noah and his family. You think about the rainbow. That's what this comes from. This is um, Noah and his family into the ark and God floods the world, killing all creatures, but also all humans because of the sin and wickedness. But then God says these astounding words after the flood. He says these to Noah. Genesis this, uh, this is Genesis 9 verses 6 and 7. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, that is whoever murders man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God's continuing this command to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. And, the, and God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever murders another human, his blood will be shed. They, they will, their life will be ended. Why? For God made man in his own 
image. And so God is very serious about the murder of humans because humans are peculiarly precious. We are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And so we need to get this. We absolutely need to get this for our, for our convictions. The reason human life is infinitely more precious than a whale or an ant is because all humans are image bearers of God. And so you think about this and an image bearer, uh, I could show you uh, or hand you a picture of myself, you know, on a little piece of um, glossy paper. Hey, here's a picture of myself. If you were to take that picture, look at it, spit on it, tear it in half, then stomp on it on the ground. I mean, what would be going on there? Well, surely you, you dishonored the picture, but that's not the point. The point is you dishonored me by doing that. You're, you're truly spitting on me. You're truly tearing me. You're stomping on me because that picture bore my image. It was a representation of me. And so it is with God. When we snuff out human life, when we dishonor human life, when we murder other humans, we are obviously dishonoring that other human, but more importantly, we're dishonoring God, whom that, that, that human bore the image of. And this is what's at stake with, with abortion and with infanticide and with any uh, kind of genocide or anything that, that humans might do to one another is we are snuffing out, we are dishonoring the image of God. Humans have a peculiar preciousness because we are made in the image of God. This is something that we have to understand. If we're to have any sort of convictions that are strong and unshakable, and if we're to have any sort of helpful conversations with others about the, the sanctity of human life, and that, that's, again, human life at every stage, pre-born, in the womb, just born, unable to do anything else, or even, again, at the end of life where, where they're no longer all that useful for society, they are still image bearers of God. And so they still carry a peculiar preciousness in the eyes of God, and they should carry that peculiar preciousness in our eyes. Now that brings us up to our, our next question, because if, if human beings do carry this peculiar preciousness, this, this infinite value over ants and whales, then why is it that humans would want to kill other humans, pre-born or otherwise? Why would we want to murder one another? What is it that would make that even thinkable? How can people be so enraged right now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned because their right to murder unborn children has been taken away? How can that even be thinkable in our world? Well, that brings us to the next thing we really need to understand for our convictions and for our conversations. And that is this, number two, true motivations and false narratives. There are true motivations behind this murder, and there are false narratives that are being spun to, to make this murder not seem so bad and to maybe even make it seem virtuous in the eyes of people. And so we actually see this uh, going on um, in Exodus and in, in Genesis once again, because you know Exodus is just an outflow of the book of Genesis. And so we need to understand again what happened back in Genesis so we can understand what's going on here in the book of Exodus. Well, we saw that in, in Genesis 3, 
uh, the serpent, which is, is Satan, Satan is controlling this serpent, comes up and tempts uh, Eve specifically, but both Adam and Eve to disobey God. And what had God said would happen if they were to disobey him, if they were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What would happen? Well, they would surely die. And Satan comes in and he says, no, you won't surely die. You, you won't surely die. God just knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. God is actually not good. And so you need to stand up for yourself, Eve. You need to stand up for yourself, Adam. Take your rights. You have a right to eat of this fruit. Adam and Eve listened to this false narrative, this lie, and they ate. And this did bring immediate uh, spiritual death to them, but it would bring eventual physical death, not only upon them, but all humanity. These spiritual and, and physical deaths come upon all humanity. So even in Genesis 3, we see that Satan is, is, is um, dead set on, on bringing death upon humans. Now, we might wonder, why is it that Satan wants to do this? Well, just to give you sort of the, the short story, the, to put it in a, a nutshell, Satan, his true motivation is not to actually try to help out Adam or Eve, not to make them you know, grab a hold of their rights. Satan's true motivation is that he hates God and he hates God's image bearers. And so he's willing to lie. He's really willing to, to uh, persuade them to do what will bring spiritual and physical death upon them. And we know that in Genesis 3.15, it says that this won't just be a short-lived thing. Genesis 3.15, God's kind of placing this curse upon the serpent. He says this to Satan, the serpent. <clears throat> I will put enmity, that's war. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that, that last phrase there, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's talking about the Savior. Specifically, we know that's talking about Jesus, one who would be born offspring of a woman, a human, and he would bruise the serpent's head. That is, he would deal the mortal blow. But in so doing, Satan would bruise his heel. And we know that's pointing to the cross, that, that wounds would be inflicted upon Jesus, but that it would be like, be like a wound on the heel, a bruise of the heel, one that would not be mortal, one that would not last. But Jesus, this Savior, would bruise the head, a mortal wound of the serpent, of Satan, and all that he stands for with his, his sinful motivations and all that he has brought into this world. But for, for our purposes, we need to notice that God said, I'm putting enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, so what that's saying is between God's spiritual offspring, between God's spiritual offspring and Satan's offspring, there would always be this war. And this war would be marked by death. So this true motivation that Satan has is hatred for God and hatred for God's image bearers. And he's trying to bring death in because of that. But of course, his false narrative is, well, God, you, you surely won't die. It's not so bad. Don't worry about it. Oh, God actually just knows you'll be like him. Uh, so take hold of your rights. That's, that's what it, Satan was trying to do. He's spinning that false narrative, trying to make it not seem so bad and even seem virtuous to oppose God. Now we see this come up again in Exodus chapter one. So Exodus chapter one, the Israelites, of course, have come 
into the land of Egypt. They have become slaves there, which is not good. But Pharaoh is now going to put in place a plan for murder. I'm going to read for you Exodus chapter 1, verses uh, 8 to 10. It says this, Now there arose a new, excuse me, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. That is, they've been fruitful. They've multiplied. They've filled the land. Come, he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so right now, Pharaoh um, is has these true motivations. It says there, um, he, he doesn't want them to multiply. He says that's because they are too many and too mighty for us. So he wants to keep control over the Israelites. That's his first motivation. And then the second motivation is greed. We see there at the end of verse 10, he says, uh, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So he doesn't want his slave force, his workforce, who is so lucrative for him to escape from the land. So he is motivated by money. He's motivated by greed. So the true motivations of Pharaoh is control and greed. Now, let's see how Pharaoh works this out. I I won't show you all of this from the text, but I'll just summarize it for you. First, Pharaoh tries to slow down reproduction with harsh slavery. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So he's going to put this harsh slavery on them, but it doesn't work. The harder they afflict the Israelites, the more the Israelites multiply and fill the land. So he has to try a new plan. That's our se- the second thing Pharaoh did. Second, Pharaoh tried to have the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, kill baby boys during birth. So these midwives would be there to help deliver the babies. And they are told, you know, if you see that it's a boy, kill that child. And so they were to act like, oh, the, the, the child must have just already been dead or, or there was a complication. So the child died. And so that, that's what they were supposed to do. That was Pharaoh's second plan. But that didn't work either. The, the midwives conveniently couldn't make it to the births on time. So the children lived, or at least that's how they, they told the story. I don't know. You have to decide for yourself if they were really there for the births or not. But either way, um, God looks upon what they did kindly. And so what we see happen is not only do do, do the Israelites continue to multiply and grow strong, but because God is happy with the actions of the midwives, he made them multiply too. He gives the midwives families. And so you have even more Israelites in the land. Pharaoh's plan for death simply is not working. So Pharaoh goes even harder. This is the third thing he does. Pharaoh commanded the Egyptians to, to murder Hebrew boys. Pharaoh commanded the Egyptians to murder Hebrew boys. It says in verse 22 of chapter one, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. But there's something interesting going on here. Why does Pharaoh say you shall cast them into the Nile? I don't want to get too detailed or graphic here, but there are more efficient ways to kill a small child. There there are other ways they can do it. So why would they have to do this inconvenient thing of carrying them all the way to the Nile and throwing them in there? Why 
were they supposed to kill the children by casting them into the Nile? And this brings us again to the idea of false narratives. That is, Pharaoh was spinning the story so that, that their sin would be excused and even made virtuous. And I want to I show you this. This is not explicit in the text, but most commentators agree, and I, I certainly see it, that the reason Pharaoh says cast them into the Nile rather than just kill them is because the Nile River was one of the greatest gods of Egypt. They believed that the Nile River was, was possessed, if you will, by a god. And so what he's saying by saying cast these Hebrew babies into the Nile is, is number one, hey, these are just Hebrews. In some way, they're, they're, they're in our way. In some way, they're hurting us as Egyptians. And so what we really need to do here is appease the Nile River God by sacrificing these Hebrew boys to the God of the Nile River by throwing them in. And so Pharaoh is making their sin of killing these children not only be excused, oh, they're just Hebrews. He's actually making it virtuous. You're helping our nation by doing this. You're helping us have more life by casting the children into the Nile River because then uh, the, the Nile will treat us well. We need to remember the Nile is what made Egypt powerful. It would overflow every year and it would uh, make the, the soil incredibly um, nutrient rich for all their, their crops. And so they, they always um, had, had lots of food because of that. And so again, Pharaoh is saying, we need that. And so it would actually be good for you to cast these children into the water. Now, do we, do we see how this connects with what's going on today? I, I hope we do, because this is exactly what's going on. Satan is still putting things in the minds of people, the offspring of Satan, that is, uh, to contrive these, these tactics for death. And what they do is they make up these false narratives that excuse people from these sins and even make this sin virtuous. So in our day, again, instead of saying, oh, they're just Hebrew babies, we say, oh, it's just a lump of cells in the woman's body. It's a part of the woman's body. So it's really not bad to get rid of this part of the woman's body. Or we hear things like, you know, there are already too many mouths to feed in this world. So it, we're really doing the world a favor by by, by exterminating these children, by aborting these children. Um, or we, we could say, well, it would actually wouldn't be a good thing to bring this child into the world because its circumstances are so difficult. Maybe the mother is, is, is poor, or maybe the mother is a, a drug user, or maybe the, the, the pregnancy happened from a, a violent act against her. And so the idea there is, well, it actually wouldn't be good for the child. It would be cruel to bring a child into this world. And so you just see all of these. And, and then you can even think of the, the, the women's rights issues. They, they again say this, this, this is inside their body. So it's a part of their body. And so this is bringing us back to the old days of, of slavery and, and women's uh, oppression. You know, this is, this is what Martin Luther King Jr. and Susan B. Anthony were fighting for. And so you guys, you pro-life people, you're the evil one. You're the unloving ones. You're the cruel ones. You're trying to oppress. You're being cruel by, by doing this, by trying to um, make it to where we can't have abortions or even talk people out of abortions, they would say is cruel. Why? Because they're spinning a false narrative. But I, I want to tell you that false narrative is just a cover up for true motivations. 
Now, I'm not saying people don't believe it. And there, there are different levels of culpability. There are different levels of responsibility here because, you know, you have the pharaohs of the world today that, that they really do have the, the desire for control and greed and all of this. And they spin the false narrative, hey, oh, this is okay. This is actually a good thing. And then other people, they're simply believing those lies. They're believing those lies. And I think that this should be really helpful for us, number one, to hold our convictions firm. Because we should hear anytime someone is telling us these reasons why it should be okay or even virtuous to kill a child, an innocent child, we should be saying, you know what? That's a false narrative. They're doing the same thing Satan did in the garden. They're doing the same thing Pharaoh did there in Egypt. They're spinning a narrative to excuse sin and even make it virtuous. But then this can help us in our conversations because when we're talking to people, we're not necessarily talking to the Pharaohs of the world. We're not necessarily talking about those who are looking for more control and, and, and for greed. Now there are those, there are, I, I think of, um, uh, all the different abortion centers and, and things like that, that we, you know, we know all about those that, and, and even different, um, governmental actions. And there are people that are like Pharaoh that are, are trying to kill life. And they have these, um, these false or sorry, these true motivations that are absolutely wicked and evil, but there are those who are simply believing the lies. They're believing that what they're doing is not all that bad because they're being told it's not all that bad. They're believing that it's virtuous, that it's, that it's honorable to fight for the right to kill children, to murder children. They believe that it's honorable. And so this should help us when we're talking to people to know they're not necessarily the enemy. They're, they're being lied to. They're, they believe these lies. And I'm not trying to excuse um, everyone who's, who's pro-choice or anything like that, but I'm telling you, we should have a little more pity and compassion on them rather than condemnation and hate. They have been led astray by these, these shepherds, these false shepherds that are saying, this is the way, this is the good way. And if you use that, that shepherd analogy, so you do have the pharaohs that are leading them badly, but the best way to get back um, a sheep that's, that's wondering usually is not going to be to beat them, right? We, we don't pummel them with a stick and say, come on back, come back, come on back to the right, the right flock. That's usually not going to work. What we need to do is love them and woo them back to the truth. And so I think this is so important that we understand that there are true motivations, true terrible motivations for this type of murder and for abortion. But there are false narratives that, number one, we should not believe. But number two, should inform the way we talk to people. They have believed lies. And we need to lovingly, graciously, compassionately compel them woo them back to the truth rather than respond fire with fire, right? Um, the, the Bible says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what we're supposed to do. And that leads me to my final point here. Number three, the faithful response. If, if, if there is a peculiar preciousness to human life, and if there are these true evil motivations, and if there are these false narratives being spun, then how should a Christian respond? How should one who does cherish God and does cherish those who, who um, reflect his image, who are made in his image, how should we respond to abortion today? Now, 
Should we just stand on the sidelines and hope things go well, do nothing basically? Or should we, again, you know, go out there uh, with, with sticks in our hands and, and just go beating people with the truth and with anger? I mean, how should we respond? How should we respond to the abortion proponents? How should we respond to a person who is considering an abortion? How should we respond to a person who has had an abortion? We need to know the faithful response. And I believe we see this right here in Exodus chapter one and Exodus chapter two there at the beginning. And so I want to summarize the faithful response like this, and then I'll do my best to show it to you and and apply it to our lives. Here's what a faithful response looks like. Our faithful response should be to do what is in our power and to treat people with gentleness and respect. So we should do what is in our power to protect those who are made in the image of God. And we should do so while treating people with gentleness and respect. That is the faithful response. That is the biblical response. That is the way that honors God and gets results. This is what God wants from us. Now, there are two examples of this from Exodus. First, we see the midwives. That's in chapter one. They're, they're, um, in, in verses uh, 17 through 20, we see their response. Now, before I even read their response, I want to say this. We might wish that these midwives had responded a little more boldly, a little more brazenly to Pharaoh. He says, when you, if you see that, that, that this, this Hebrew child is a male while the, while the birth is happening, then kill it. Now, they, they, they could have said no to Pharaoh. They could have gotten up in his face and said, how dare you uh, tell us to murder these children? They could have tried to, to you know, show Pharaoh all the different ways he was wrong in this and how terrible of an idea this was. They could have told him how this is part of Satan's plan. We might wish that they would have done that, but we need to understand they were not in the same world that we're in today. Pharaoh literally believed himself to be God. They be- he believed himself to be God. And so you did not stand up to Pharaoh and live. You don't even try to talk sense into Pharaoh and live. And so what would have happened had they stood up to Pharaoh boldly and brazenly? Well, Pharaoh would have just had them killed. And then he would have gotten new midwives who would have still carried out what he wanted them to do. So it simply was not an option. It was not in the power of the Hebrew wives to stand up to Pharaoh in that sort of way. But what do we see them do? We see them do what was in their power to do to protect human lives. Exodus chapter one, verses uh, 17 through 20, it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. So here's what we see happen with the midwives. They, they didn't stand up to Pharaoh. They didn't you know, try to change his mind, but they did what they could do. They made a way to help these children live. And by the way, my, my opinion here is that they really didn't show up on time for these, these, uh, these births. My opinion is that they plotted, they planned, and they came up with a way that they could protect the Hebrew children. 
And that was by showing up late to their birth. I think that they did exactly what they had the power to do. Nothing more, nothing less. They protected human life by doing what was in their power to do. And by the way, even when Pharaoh comes to them and says, why have you done this? They still treated him with gentleness and respect. They don't get up in his face once again saying, well, we did this because you are so evil and you're trying to kill everyone. They, they speak to him with gentleness and respect, albeit, you know, they didn't do what he wanted. Um, they, they still spoke to him with gentleness and respect. Now, the second example we have of this, of people who did what they could do, is Moses' family, right? At this point, Moses hasn't been born, but you come to chapter two, and there are these, these Israelites who have a child. And, and, and so at that point, um, it's their responsibility or whatever to give up their child to the Egyptians to be thrown into the Nile River, to have their child killed, this human bearing the image of God killed. And so, again, we might wish that they, along with all the other Israelites, would go picket and protest at, at Pharaoh's house, but that would not have worked. God, that would have just ended with more death and, and even less good would come of it. But they did what was in their power. They did what they could do to protect an image bearer of God. And so they, they made a basket and they, they put the child in that basket and then they placed that child in the Nile and, and Moses' sister is watching over the child. And, and again, you should read it yourself, but we know how the story goes. Pharaoh's daughter comes out to the Nile to, to, to bathe and she finds this basket and she sees the baby in there and she has pity on it. And, and Pharaoh's um, daughter is, is kind of figuring, trying to figure out what to do. And this is what happens in, in chapter two, verse seven. Then his sister, that's Moses's sister, who is watching over him, trying, you know, protecting him, making sure things went well. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? She didn't say, hey, give us back the child because that would have, you know, most likely been an instant death sentence. She says, can I, can I go call a nurse so that you can have this child, that I can find someone to nurse this child for you so that, um, you know, because the Pharaoh's daughter wouldn't be able to nurse. I, I, can, I can do that for you. I want to help this child live. She did what was in her power to do. Moses' parents did what was in their power to do. The midwives did what was in their power to do to protect these image bearers of God. And again, you see um, Moses' sister still speaks with gentleness and respect. She doesn't say, well, you want to know why that child's out in the basket? Because your dad is trying to have all these babies killed. I mean, she, she didn't go off on a rant. She just tried to, to help, to save, to protect this image bearer of God in this human baby, Moses. Now. We live in a very different world than, than, than the Israelites were in in Egypt. They couldn't do much. They didn't have a whole lot of power to stand up to Pharaoh. They didn't have a whole lot of power to protect human life, but they did what they could do, and they did it with gentleness and respect. And so I want to tell you that we actually live in a world where we have far more power than they did. We live in a world where we don't have to fear, at least yet, uh, being put to death for, for carrying this opinion or, or for protecting our own children's lives. And we have a voice. We live in a, a republic, a representative republic, where we do appoint people to offices who make these laws, and we're allowed to, to, to you know, talk with them. And we, we, we live in a very different world where we have far more power than they did in Egypt. And so I want to give you 
three suggestions. And I think these are so important of what we must do because we must not just stand to the side and let it happen. We must do what's in our power to do. So I want to give you three suggestions for what we can and should and must do if we care about human life, if we care about people made in the likeness and image of God. First, we can speak up with gentleness and respect. You keep hearing me say that gentleness and respect part. If you can't do it with gentleness and respect, I would say just wait. Don't speak up yet until you can. And I would say pray to God. God, give me a heart of compassion. Give me a heart of love. Let the fruit of the Spirit flow through me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God, help me to have those things come out of my mouth rather than the hatred that I feel right now. But we must speak up. Now, who could we speak up to? Well, this could be our friends. This could be our family members. This could be our coworkers. This could be anyone who is willing to talk to us uh, about this. And here's why it's so important that we speak up to our peers, our coworkers, family, friends, because they are hearing this false narrative. They're hearing, you know, that it's not only not bad to kill children, but that it's actually virtuous, that it's pro-women's rights, it's, it's, it's pro, you know, removing oppression. They are believing these false narratives. And so we need to speak up. We need to give them God's narrative, which is the only true narrative. We need to tell them. Now, it's not just a bundle of cells in, in that, that mother's body. That is a human. And that's a human made in the image of God. It bears the image of God. And so to snuff out that life would be to dishonor the God who made it. By the way, Psalm 139 says, you have knit me together in my mother's womb. I I believe human life happens at conception. The moment uh, the, the, the sperm and the egg combine, you have a human made in the image of God. God is knitting that child together in that mother's womb and he has put his fingerprint on that new human. And so I believe from the moment of conception, you have a human that should be protected. And we tell them that. We tell our friends, we tell our family, we tell our coworkers, this is a human. And because they're made in the image of God, they carry a peculiar preciousness that must be protected. And so we, we do that. We talk, we reason with people. We tell them the true narrative as opposed to the false narratives they are believing. In addition, I would say we can speak up to our elected officials, right? You can call, you can email. There really are lines. You can look them up online and find your state representatives and you can call them. And I've done this many times. I hate making phone calls, but these phone calls are worth it to me because it's in my power to let my representative know, hey. I stand for life. I want you as my representative to protect the lives of these pre-born children in the mother's womb. I want that to happen. And so you can do that. You can pick up the phone. You can write emails to our elected officials. And I would even say your vote matters. I would say your vote speaks that we should vote for people who are pro-life, that we should be incredibly, incredibly hesitant to vote for anyone who is pro-death, pro-choice, that is, that the mother can choose to kill their child. We can speak with our vote. In all of this, we do it with gentleness and respect, that we let the fruit of the Spirit flow out of our mouths and, and our facial expressions. We let God work through us. 
And by that, we hope to change the narrative in people's minds. And maybe even by the way we conduct ourselves to change their hearts, right? Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. People know chaos. People know hatred. They know condemnation. But do they know people who can disagree, but do so with love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? No, this is a good deed that comes from God. And we can show them that, that they might glorify our father who is in heaven. Now, that's the first thing we can do. Speak up, speak up. The second thing that we can do that is in our power to do is to support pregnant women. Speak up and support pregnant women. Very often, the reason women or families choose abortion is because they don't feel they have any other good option. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources. They maybe don't have the knowledge of how to raise a child. Maybe they don't have the time. Maybe they already have too many children. But maybe you could support them enough that they feel like they could choose life. I mean, this could be just as simple as encouraging them. Words like, you can do it. You can do it. I know it will be difficult, but you can do it. I, I, by the way, have had people encourage me in the right way sometimes that it has made all the difference in the world. I, I truly believe my life is different because of single sentences that have come out of the mouths of people empowered by God in my life. And so maybe to that, that pregnant mom who feels she can't do it or to that, that father who's encouraging you know, the, the mother to have the abortion, you can do it. That could be what they need. But you could also support them financially. You could say, you don't feel like you can afford it, but let me help you. Let me help get you resources. Let me help get you a crib and diapers and toys and everything else you might need. And then maybe you could even offer them help when the child comes. I'll come over. I've got some extra time. I'll come over. I'll teach you how to, how to raise a child. I'll teach you how to, to you know, put them to sleep and how to do all these things. I'll, I'll teach you to do it. I will be there for you. I will support you so that you can choose life. And I, by the way, say there, there are already crisis pregnancy centers all over America that are set up to help these women, to give them counsel, to give them aid, to give them resources to help these families choose life. Our, our local one is called Choices Pregnancy Center, and you could donate to them. You could help them because they're always needing more resources. You could donate money or, or again, the resources, diapers, and things that they would need to help these families choose life. And you could even volunteer there. They're always needing more counselors, people that, that these pregnant mothers can talk to. They're always needing more people to, to sort the, the resources that they have. We could volunteer at these pregnancy centers so that people can choose life. But there's one last thing we could do to support uh, pregnant women, and that would be this. You could pray about fostering or adopting a child. Maybe that's something you could do is you could say, hey, there are all these good adoptive parents out there. There are all, all these good foster parents that would watch your child. And maybe I, I, I could be that for you. Maybe I could adopt your child if you were to have it. You could pray about adopting a child. Why? To, to show love to this child made in the image of God, to show love to the mother and even the father of this, this yet to be born child. You could choose to foster or adopt a child. There's always a need for more foster parents and more adoptive parents. And I believe God calls us to, to be that. And God will give us the grace that we need to be that for those children. God, I don't know, think everyone is called to do that, but I think we certainly should be open to it and praying about if God would have us do it to support pregnant women.
So first we speak up with gentleness and respect. We support pregnant women. And finally, the third thing that we must do if we want to save image bearers of God is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, we cannot legislate morality. Laws will not change people's hearts. More rules to follow will not make people followers of God who actually love God and love his image bearers. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that does that. See, Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was as though our sin nature was dying there with him. And so when we trust in Jesus, we get a new heart, a new mind that desires the things of God. And so what we need to do to to really have the victory with this pro-life movement, with our pro-life desires, with protecting image bearers of God is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not responsible for whether or not that other person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, but we are responsible for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel has the power to give people hope, to give people new life that would make them be a protector of human life as well. We must share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't get so distracted in protecting human life, physical life, that we don't protect human spiritual life. We need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people boldly. This is what we need more than anything else, is people whose hearts and minds are changed by Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. So the question remains on us. How are we going to respond in these times? Are we going to become haters just like uh, the, the, the pro-choice people who, who speak out in condemnation and just anger? Well, the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James says, so that we shouldn't do that. Well, are we just going to sit on the sidelines and let it happen? We, we certainly can't do that because we need to do what is in our power to do. What can we do? We can speak up. We can support pregnant mothers and we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is at least the beginning point of the faithful response. God may call you to much more, but let me tell you something. I don't believe God would call you to any less than those three things. Speak up, help people know the true narrative when when Satan is spinning lies. Support pregnant mothers, show them I care enough to actually help you through this and share the gospel of Jesus Christ because they need not only laws, They need a heart change. They need salvation. They need new spiritual life. We must do this. And so let's pray now. I'm going to be praying for you, listener. Let's pray now that God would do this in our hearts, that he would give us a love for humans because of the peculiar preciousness they have as image bearers, and that he would help us to respond faithfully. Pray with me. Father God, would you help us to not be reflections of the world, but reflections of you by the way that we respond to to this murder that's going on in the world, this killing of image bearers. Would you help us to reflect you? And God, you are not one who would have us respond in hatred and anger and condemnation, but you tell us to respond with gentleness and respect. And God, you're not an unengaged God, you, you, you reach in, you, you swoop in, you save, you protect. And so, God, 
Help us to do what is in our power to do. God, help us to speak up. Help us to have the fruit of the Spirit so that we can speak up with gentleness and respect. And God, help us to sacrifice so that we can support pregnant women. Help us to sacrifice of our money, our time, our energy, our resources, so that human life, image bearers of you, can be protected. And God, help us to share the glory of your gospel. More than anything else, your glory is put on display by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way he took our deserved punishment upon himself. Oh God, help us to share that gospel, that by faith we can have forgiveness of all our sins, including the sin of abortion. By faith, we can have forgiveness and right standing before you, God. We can have a new life and a new eternity with you. God, we're so thankful that because of what Christ Jesus did, you adopt us as children. Lord, would you use us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that this was helpful for you. I hope that this spoke to you. I hope that that you see that this wasn't just my opinion, but this is God's opinion because we're drawing it from God's word. If you want to hear any more of these resources that we have, you can go on psbc.net. We have more sermons on there. You can uh, join us there at uh, 422 Poplar Springs Road on Sundays. We have sermons, uh, our, our service, our worship service at 1045 a.m. on Sundays. We would love to have you there. I'd love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. I'd love to help you through any of this. Uh, But most of all, we just want God glorified, even as good comes to us by His grace. So I, I, I hope that this is a blessing to you. Until next time, this is Pastor Jeff Barry. Bye.